Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. The myths and stories of the ancient Greeks are filled with androids. The android or cyborg Talos defended the island of Crete. Daedalus, also of Crete, was a peripatetic engineer who made other androids or life-mimicking sculptures. The artisan god Hephaestus, Talos's creator, not only built Talos, but the lightning bolts of Zeus and was aided at his forge by automated devices. For the ancient Greeks, the mythic past was inhabited by super geniuses who could create marvelous things. My guest Adrian Mayer, in her new book, Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology, not only catalogs these creations, weaving together sources from Hesiod to Etruscan urns, but seeks to understand the fascination, even the obsession, that ancient people had for tales of the artificial creation of life and of the augmentation of natural power. Adrian Mayer is a research scholar in classics and history and history of science at Stanford University. This is her sixth book, one of several that investigates natural knowledge contained in pre-scientific myths and oral traditions. Adrian, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, um, when did, how did you become interested in using ancient folklore to investigate this uh, natural knowledge? Well, you know. Um I, I was fascinated by ancient Greek mythology at a very early age, and uh, in college I was a rather distracted student, but I did focus on three major areas at the University of Minnesota. I studied classical civilizations, um, ancient Greece and Rome, and also um, uh, took a lot of classes in just mythology and epic poems and sagas, uh, so lots of um, just literature having to do with mythology and legend. Then uh, University of Minnesota was one of the first places that had a history of science. Um, mm. They had courses in history of science, and I took every one of those mm. that I could because I was interested in the first inklings of science. And I think that's what holds all my books together is that mm. uh, I'm interested in looking for the first... Uh, impulses of a uh, scientific investigation in pre-modern cultures. I think science history should go all the way back to antiquity, not just start in the Enlightenment, the way most historians of science uh, sort of picture history of science. And the other um, the other set of courses that I took uh, were in folklore. So uh, University of Minnesota had some of the first classes in urban legend. And I was interested in tracing urban legends all the way back to antiquity as well. So I, I just became more interested in folklore and legend rather, rather than um, just um, mythology as a kind of study of the gods. I, I was more interested in how it related to legends and beliefs about nature, especially mm-hmm. um, perplexing phenomena in nature. So yes. I, I think I think that there's a there's a lot of insight and perception in 
what ordinary people had to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I, I tended to fo- focus on. It's interesting as I was I was contemplating this um, that uh, you know a very old school history of science, um, which I, I I fear is still the popular history of science that filters out to a lay audience, is based on the history of experimentation. Um, rather than the history yeah. of perceptions of the natural world, and that's more on um, on uh, um, reproducible experiments yes. and things like that, and it's sort of formal, a formal kind of science. But uh, the impulse goes all the way back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and the, and when uh, and and as this book makes clear, it's just kind of, kind it, of uncanny how the myths of Greece are saturated with. <laughs> science fiction characters. It, these are the first science fiction stories. Yes. I, it, that finally dawned on me, and it really depends on your search image, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, that's why I love Greek mythology and legends and folklore, because you can read them over and over again, and depending on what you're looking for or what strikes you, it, there's so many layers, and you'll find new things there. I mean, when I first started this book on the quest for uh, for artificial life, uh, I was speaking to a historian here at Stanford, a friend, good, very good friend who's a uh, Roman historian and archaeologist, and I told him what I was working on, uh, ancient automatons, and he said, well, that'll be a very short book. <laughs> and I I thought, well, oh, I hope not. And sure enough, I, as you say, the myths were just filled with 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 uh, imaginings of how to create artificial life. It's in fact there are myths, um, and when you add augmentation of natural power to that, then you realize, oh my yeah. goodness, it's everywhere. I mean, everywhere. It's everywhere. If you've got the search image, exactly. Once you put the spectacles that, on. Um, yeah, I learned that concept from uh, paleontologist friends um, when I was working on uh, my first couple of books on how pre-modern societies discovered and interpreted fossil remains, uh, you know, remains, mm-hmm. remarkable bones and um, remains of uh, creatures they'd never seen before. And I remember the paleontologists uh, told me about search image. That's how they discover fossils. You have to have a, you have to have a search image. Um, not necessarily uh, Looking, you, you don't have an um, exact idea what you're looking for, but you're looking for something that stands out from the from uh, <coughs> from the routine, and then you find a pattern. And once you find that pattern, then you're going to find a lot of what you're looking for. Oh yes, I, I just saw a um, photograph of a snake in leaves. Um, <laughs> yes, I've seen that photograph. Yeah, I don't know why that <laughs> just cropped up, but it's it's a sort of the same. Yeah. You won't see it unless you're looking for a snake. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you have to, you have to at least have the possibility, if you're not looking for a snake, and this is important for say hiking in the, in the Blue Ridge or the Sierras, yeah. you at least have yeah. to have the possibility there might be a snake on the path in front of you. Um, you that's a pattern. search image. Yeah. yeah. You have that pattern yeah. in your head. It, that, that sort of gets to, um, well, you have to deal with, I mean, classicists are amazing always in, in the way that they can use sources. Um, 
uh, you are the the super athletes of uh, humanities. Um, so, and the sources you use, I mean, he see it as the great treasury of stories about the gods, but you can't just stop there. You have to piece no. them together from play after play, scraps of plays, scraps of this, scraps of that. I mean, basically the entire Loeb's library is ransacked. And then you turn to, va you know, vases and uh, cameos. And what, 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 how many, did you ever count the number of sources that you use? Or types no, of I don't, but I, I, um, I know that most, uh, uh, Official classical historians—they concentrate on just the big guys. You know, they—they—if—if if Aristotle and Thucydides and Plato didn't mention something, then no one noticed it in antiquity, and I knew that was wrong. Mm -hmm. So I—I I look at every single possible source for what I'm looking for. I—I I, I go for scraps, fragments, um, the minor writers, even writers that are, you know poo-pooed by classicists because they don't uh, they don't have a fine um, prose style or poetic no. style. I don't care. Uh, I think that uh, comes from my folklorist background is I, I want to know what people said and thought so, no matter what. I, um, so I will look at every scrap. So could you so explain? Uh, sorry, yes, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, so what is the folklorist methodology that you're sort of using? Because as you're talking, that seems to me that sort of, sort of the... Um, that the principal part of your pattern recognition system is a folklorist methodology. And I don't know anything about that. And I'm not a formally trained folklorist, but I, uh, I do uh, fall into the category of classical folklorist. I think there are about five of us. <laughs> um, and and some, several are emeritus. You can so, meet uh, in a tool shed for your <laughs> annual conference. <laughs> but, um, so I, what I do is if I'm looking for artificial life, um, these things aren't indexed anywhere, so no. it just means a lot of reading, which I love to do. So as you say, I read all the ancient uh, Greek and Latin texts that I can get my hands on, and they're all, almost all are online now. You mm. mentioned the lobes, but a lot of that is a lot of it is online. But although I do haunt libraries too, <laughs> so I look at every single version of a certain myth. Talos, I have looked for every reference to tell us that I can find in in every ancient text that it, that we can that we that we know of even fragments so I know that there were lost plays for instance about Talos um, and you know fragments and then I look for then I look for, uh, for art um, for art artistic representations of the story of Talos so I, I try to find every single scrap I can um, of poetry, myth, history, art, uh, philosophers, um, just everything I can find. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that that, I think part of that is just my personality. I really look, I really like to look that deeply. I love the research. Um, but, you know, the other thing is that uh, but just so much has been lost of antiquities, literary and artistic um, sources has been lost over m millennia. So what we have is incomplete, and sometimes it's fragments isolated from the original context. So, you know, it's hard for a lot of historians to grasp just how much of ancient literature and art has vanished. Yeah, it is. I was told, yeah, I was told that by a, um, uh, a curator at the Getty uh, who works with ancient vase paintings, he says that over the, we have thousands of ancient vases have survived, and they represent about those paintings represent about one 
1% of what once existed. So yeah. um, I, I compare it uh, in my book to the mosaic, mosaic um, effect of a wildfire. Uh, you get great swaths of burned out regions and then a few patches of meadows and green trees still exist. And that's what I'm looking for, anything that still exists. I think because of this devastation of all the vanished literature, we need to look at every single piece and scrap that we that exists from antiquity. It's valuable. How do you, how do you find the visual images? How do you go about ferreting those out? So if you're looking for visual representations of talos, can you can you find those in the uh, in catalogs and so on? Um, there are uh, some classicists who have uh, worked on various specific myths, and they have searched for all the images they could find. Um, there are also, there are online, um, the Beasley archives in uh, Oxford. Uh, you can search by, uh, by um, uh, name of Talos or uh, technique or artist or date, that kind of thing. So I just pour over, I pour over um, museum collections. Uh, sometimes finding s uh, some images that um, other scholars haven't noticed yet. I go to uh, obscure museums in Italy and Greece, which um, have some really important vases, but nobody has really known much about them. Um, so there was one uh, one that showed Jason using a tool to disable the bronze robot Talos. Yeah. I thought that was really quite amazing because it, it proves that in the 5th century B.C., uh, artists imagined this bronze uh, android as a technological project product. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in looking at the art because it can tell us about um, versions of a story that we don't have the, we don't have a literary version. It's just referred to in the art because you know the 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 ancient artists are are illustrating what what people know, what people want to see, and what what they already know. It's just that we've lost the story. The um, the, the, I said in the introduction, I referred to that the stories are filled with androids, which will sound very unsettling to the the listener. Um, who says immediately there can't be androids there can't be cyborgs Talos and as we'll get to in a second is actually more like a cyborg than an android even um, and all these terms of robot is from what the the play RUR by um, Rossum's Universal Robots by was it Kopek I think Carl Kopek yeah uh, Carol Kopek yeah, yeah like the 20s I think um, I think it was like 1920 yeah, yeah so um, this yeah. this is this is re this is uh, <laughs> certainly a lot more recent, and it gets to a, a problem not only of definition but even of uh, visualizing things uh, when we're using terms that are uh, very recent to describe things that that were that other people are envisioning three thousand years ago. That's right, uh, and we have to be careful of um, not sort of projecting back yeah. our. Uh, our, our, our terminology. Um, so finding uh, the right language to describe the range of um, automatons and non-natural beings mm -hmm. in the ancient mythology. Uh, what's interesting to me is that I found that uh, these entities were described in the ancient mythology as made, not born. Um, Talos, the bronze robot, is, is described that way, and so is Pandora. Yeah. That means they're manufactured, yeah. not biologically born. That's a 
important distinction. Um, and, and it seems to me, um, you bring this out, I, I think that that seems to me one of the, um, the fundamental preoccupations of this kind of imagination is to contemplate what it is to be made rather than born. Yes, no memory, no childhood, no yeah. parents, um, and then would, but would an entity like this have agency yeah. or desire? Um, and that's why the bronze robot Talos is so interesting because he he does <clears throat> fit he does fit um, the definition of uh, our definition of robot. A, ro- a, a robot is. Uh, it's not a very um, stable definition even today. Everyone. Uh, debates over what it, it what it right. means. It's complex, ambiguous, but it's usually a machine or self-moving object that has a power source that provides energy, and it can be programmed uh, to to kind of sense its surroundings, and it has a kind of mind or intelligence or way of processing data to in order to interact with the environment to perform a task. And Talos, the bronze animated statue, uh, does fit that that modern definition. Um, he is, as you said, uh, kind of imagined as a cyborg, uh, kind of half machine, half human. He is made of bronze, but we do know his inner workings. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is a, an, an android described by Hesiod. Um, that's, we're talking about about 700 BC. He's around the time of of Homer. Well, let's talk about Amazing. Talos. Let's let's talk yeah, about him. It, so, who, who, okay. what is he? What is he? Who is he? Uh, where's <laughs> where's he come from? And what's he for? <laughs> Talos uh, is um, a bronze robot made by Hephaestus um, in his forge, and he was. Uh, charged with defending the island or the kingdom of Crete against invaders or, uh, or pirates. And he was said to patrol um, King Minos's kingdom by marching around that island three times a day. Uh, and someone ha- has calculated that means he travels like 150 miles an hour. <laughs> Remember, these are science fiction stories. Yeah. And he's kind of programmed by Hephaestus uh, to repel invaders. He can uh, when he spots a ship approaching the shore, he picks up large rocks and throws them at the ship. Uh, so he's hurling boulders to sink foreign ships. But he has uh, another capability in close combat. Um, uh, he can heat his bronze body to red hot, grab up a victim, and hug them to his chest to roast them alive. Uh, so this is, this is a rather daunting uh, killer robot, actually. Yeah. Um, and he, um, we have vase paintings of this uh, bronze man, and he is shown as a um, an android made of bronze. And you can see the rivets and the and the seams on his body. And his body is painted in the same way they paint bronze statues. Huh. So he is imagined as a, as bronze. I, but I, we know I, his I, inner workings too. So that's um, yeah. I'm looking. Go ahead. I'm, I'm looking at the um, page sixteen in your book. The uh, the plate two, which is of the um, Jason unscrewing a bolt in his ankle. I mean, he yes. looks like, he looks like a man to me. Um, in that picture, in, the, in that vase, um, he does look like a man, but he is much larger than Jason or the other men. Yes, um, but he does have a bolt in his ankle. It's just and if you extraordinary. Go back to the other, uh, go back a couple pages to yeah. see the plate. Um, another figure. 
uh, vase painting from the same time period. Uh -huh. There he is. I have a color plate of that, too, in my book. Uh, there he is shown as a bronze man. He's painted a sort of yellowish, yellowish oh, yes, white, and you can see the seams on his body. Yeah. Um, and he is... Uh, meant to be definitely shown he's, to so be. So he's got like a sort of Batman wrong. musculature, but not all the seams are actually the right muscles. There's there's sort of additional That's seams right. to it, yeah. Um, That's right. So what's the story? How do Jason and then Medea, which is who's interesting in her own right, I mean, and we, we'll have to get to magic at some point and, and what magicians are, but... Um, <laughs> but she's, they, a, she's a kind of techno wizard. She's yeah, the, exactly. the great sorceress. Uh, great sorceress, a witch from uh, from Eastern lands, and she has all this sort of arcane knowledge. Well, she's um, accompanying Jason and the Argonauts on their quest for the Golden Fleece. She's fallen in love with Jason, and so she helped him uh, to win the Golden Fleece. And Jason and the Argonauts are now on their way home with the prize, and Medea's with them. And I, I need to tell you about the inner workings of Talos. Yes, please. Because that's what makes him uh, a robot. He does have inner workings, a source of energy, um, which is amazing for the very first robot in, in Greek mythology uh, that we know so many details about him. He, uh, he is made by Hephaestus with a single artery or vein, and the word is... Uh, is a biological term. They call it a vein, and in that uh, in that vein or artery or, t or tube, he has an animating force. It's a liquid called ichor, and that's the mysterious life fluid of the gods. So ichor is pulsating through this single conduit that goes from his neck to his ankle. Um, so this is this is his energy source. He's got a sort of biomimetic vivis system that is sealed by a bronze nail or bolt on his ankle. And Medea figures out that this is his weak point. This is his point of vulnerability. Uh, and she realizes he has ichor. Now that is what makes the gods immortal. So she she really thinks about this. She's like a hacker, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She hacks his system. She figures out that, okay, he's got Ichor. That's what makes the gods immortal. But if we can cause the Ichor to leave his body, if we can exsanguinate this bronze robot, uh, we will destroy him. But can I, can I just has, say, um, the, yes. what's interesting is is trying to tease out this this question of magic and technology, which you know it's inter yeah. such an interesting thing. People have been this has been a, a long standing historiographical within the history of science about sort of say seventeenth and sixteenth century magic as a as a means of understanding the natural world. I I yeah. hadn't realized Medea as a as a magician um, has that classic. Um, magical power or interest in in interpreting and then mastering aspects of the natural world but until i read your book <laughs> i hadn't realized that she has the, the the capacity of the hacker as well and the hacker is a yeah. magician but over yeah. made over made things things are made by other uh creative people forces gods whatever she does both That's right she does both, and she has. She's a she's a kind of magician, but she is a a, a mistress of technology as well. Yeah. And I think the magical and the mechanical or te technological often overlap 
in this, uh, these ancient stories of artificial life. Um, so uh, what I focused on in this book uh, are the, are the uh, entities that are described as made, not born, manufactured, mm-hmm. not born. Not, I, not on the... Um, well, every culture has these stories of inert matter suddenly brought to life by a magical spell uh, or uh, by a god's command. Um, you can think about um, even Adam and Eve are, sure. are sort of magically brought to life by God's command. Uh, they're made of clay and then brought to life. Um, the story of Pygmalion and, and Galatea, the ivory statue. She is. She was not created as an automaton. She was not created um, uh, to be a technological project, uh, a product. He prays to a god to bring her. Or Cadmus and the um, the warriors that he are created from dragons, the dragon's teeth. Yes, that's, those, that's those are that's magically just, created. Magically, yeah, yes. it's just yes, yeah. yeah, and and so um, I think it's it's uh, it's hard to tease out the uh, sort of threads of magic and technology. Um, um, uh, there's a, a book by Blakely on um, ancient metallurgy mm-hmm. and. Um, just the the technology of uh, bronze working and forging um, uh, metallurgy that ha- that has lots of trappings of magic with it. People are in awe of it, mm-hmm. and, and sort of you you have to think of that um, uh, that uh, famous statement that uh, any technology that is um, prodigiously advanced will be seen as magic. And so, yeah, Clark's third today, law. Any advanced, any sufficiently advanced technology right, is indistinguishable yeah. from magic, I think. Yeah, Arthur Clark. Yeah. Yes, that's a, that's a, his dictum. And this is true today. I mean, uh, we know these are manufactured artifacts that we have today. Laptops, smartphones, cars, um, rockets, submarines. But um, they might as well be magic to us. We don't we don't know how how they work. We don't know how to fix them. We don't know how to control them. Um, they're they're black boxes to mm-hmm. us. But uh, so that's what that's what Medea is. A, quite an interesting character. Mm-hmm. She figures out how to do that by assuming that um, this bronze robot might have developed some sort of human um, desires or emotions, and she plays on those emotions. She tells him, "I can make you immortal, but only if I remove that." bronze bolt on your ankle and he agrees uh which that that suggests that he has some human desires he wants to be immortal and he's he's um vulnerable to persuasion mm. well a machine shouldn't be vulnerable to persuasion so he he is like a cyborg as you mentioned he's um half human half machine and she and jason then remove the bolt so he's he's created by technology and destroyed by technology yeah, you know, Jason in the in the one de- in the detail of the of the of the vase, he is basically using a wrench to removing a bolt, or exactly. quite with the <laughs> intent look of a of a very young mechanic. Um, it's quite extraordinary. Um, it's such a modern looking image. It's it is. Just, um, it really is. It looks like a kid look. working on a lawnmower, except it's the leg of a leg of a, um, of a of a bronze man. Um, I know, and that that vase painting is in a tiny museum in Italy, and it uh, took a long time to track down. Huh. 
where that vase actually was. It's such an important vase for for seeing how the Greeks imagined uh, an automaton. Crete is uh, very much associated with uh, Daedalus, um, who is uh, would be recognized as a uh, people who were at first, let's put it this way, people who were at first surprised to hear me refer to androids and cyborgs would not say, well, yes, Daedalus, he was a, he was a craftsman, he was an engineer. Um, but he's um, it's more than that, I realized, in that sense that he is appropriated by so many different uh, cities and cultures, uh, Hellenic cultures around the Eastern Mediterranean, or even Western Mediterranean. Um, can we talk about him? Uh, he starts out with uh, sort of as a facilitator for bestiality, and he kind of, <laughs> kind of moves on from there. Naturally, the Romans love this. Uh, I can imagine <laughs> it was part of every uh, gentleman's study to put uh, something like a pas- pacifier and and, yeah. and the bull. But there's a lot there's a lot more there just beyond uh, crude interest to the Roman aristocrat. Yeah, well, in in the Greek myth, uh, Daedalus, as you say, is a legendary craftsman. Uh, assumed to be a, he's a human, he's not a god. Mm-hmm. Uh, some scholars think that he might just stand for, you know, uh, brilliant craftsmen of, of of antiquity. He was said to have uh, invented animated statues, statues that could move and even speak. And he's famous, of course, for making the um, uh, bird's wings for himself and his son Icarus. Um, so he's he's uh, he sort of stands for ancient inventors. Um, he's really uh, he's quite quite amazing uh, adventures, as you say, all across the ancient world. It's interesting that um, the British artist Michael Ayrton has uh, he wrote a novel actually from from the point of view of of Daedalus, in which he was sort of channeling Daedalus. But he points out that. Um, you could actually replicate some of the technological wonders that were attributed to mm. uh, Daedalus. And um, he says that uh, people sort of underestimate the technology of antiquity. You, um, not that they could actually fly. But, yeah. Um, you yeah. point out that Daedalus, uh, many of the things that are attributed to him sort of have a relation to technological developments of that period, say 600 to 400 B.C.? Yeah. Um, well, you asked about uh, Pasiphae. Sure. Um, and he made uh, he made animated statues, but uh, he also created um, uh, animated um, animals uh, for various uses. And Pasiphae was a a queen of of Crete who had been cursed by Zeus with an unnatural desire to have sex with a living and very handsome bull in one of her husband's herds on Crete, and she asked Daedalus, who was the brilliant sculptor and craftsman who worked for King Minos, um, she asked him to make a replica, a realistic replica of a cow, so that she could crawl inside and um, have sex with this bull that she had fallen in love with because of Zeus's curse. Um, And this myth goes back to the 4th century BC, probably much earlier uh, in oral traditions. Um, and Daedalus created this very realistic cow, and in fact, it did fool the bull into having sex with Pasiphae inside the bull. And we have lots of stories of of um, replica animals, um, automaton animals, 
made so realistically that they fool uh, that they can fool real animals into trying to mate with them. So this is this isn't just an isolated story. It's just that we have a lot of detail. It's interesting. You just touched on this briefly, but it's related to another topic in the book that we're, I've avoided and not, not because it's not interesting, but, um, to basically imaginings of the biological, um, and imaginings of immortality and of the different forms that life might take. And so the Minotaur is itself a sort of meditation on the result of such a, a union, um, the result of genetic modification. It's a. It is amazing um, that they they uh, after after um, Pasiphae has sex with the bull, the Greeks then imagine well what would happen if uh, if we had that kind of genetic yeah. mixing, um, and they imagine that she gives birth to a a, a baby uh, that has a bull's head, mm-hmm. and that is the Minotaur, and there are vase paintings of Pasiphae with this baby minotaur on her lap and she's looking very doubtful <laughs> yeah. um, I, I guess that's the best way to describe the expression <laughs> on her face yeah <laughs> um, Un- unpleased then, yeah unpleased they're um perplexed about yes. what to do with him um uh, and there are, of course then king minos uh is um well, it's a nasty shock for King Minos, <laughs> and he uh, um, requests that Daedalus make a prison for this Minotaur, his stepson. And Daedalus makes the uh, the labyrinth mm-hmm. uh, where the, uh, Minos is kept deep inside the labyrinth, and then even Daedalus is imprisoned in in the labyrinth that he has been forced to make, and that's when he makes the wings so that he and his son can escape. Crete and fly to Sicily. It's and it's in interesting. Italy, Daedalus continues. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, interesting that even um, ancient writers uh, that you you quote, uh, who, who is this? Oh, is it uh, Pausanias? Uh, they reject the idea. They no, that's uh, it's impossible that he could have flown. He probably invented he invented the sail or something like that. Yes, which was, <laughs> sounds very modern. If we if we if we you know change his name for a sort of a French name for the 16th century, that would sound, you know, about right. You know, that would sound... Yes, yes. well, there are all these skeptics who, even in antiquity, skeptics who try to explain the uh, the myths yeah. um, by th- by rationalizing them. So that was uh, that was Pausanias' um, effort at rationalizing that myth. And so Icarus, of course, as we know, falls. Um, yes. Which, as you point out, has now become a cliché. Um, yes. but of course it, it's only become because a cliche when we're used to technological failure. Uh, it wasn't a cliche when it was, when it was first told. It's very interesting. I mean, it might've been, it might've been a sort of, they might've been familiar as familiar, well, less familiar with technological failure than us, but still it was fresh and interesting once upon a time. Absolutely. And one of the things that I point out, um, about that myth, uh, although it's tragic, um, Everyone focuses on the fact that Icarus dies, but in fact, they both, in the myth, they were imagined as succeeding. They they both did achieve flight. Mm-hmm. Um, Daedalus, uh, his dream of flight actually comes true. He succeeds, but at a very high cost, mm-hmm. and maybe that's part of the uh, lesson of the myth. Um, is that uh, he does succeed, but at a high cost. You don't you. 
he actually anticipated the um, the the weak um, the weak points or the vulnerabilities of his technology, and pointed them out to his son, who ignored them, uh, ignored the warnings, and then uh, was killed because he flew too close to the sun, which um, his father had warned him about. But then Daedalus, after burying his son and mourning him. Uh, puts on his wings and flies to Sicily. So this is a su- successful technology, yeah. but just um, the, the cost is high. Yeah, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good point. Uh, he makes his way to Sicily, as you said. Um, what do you make of his adventures there? What He there, they, there he makes a, yet another uh, lifelike creature, uh, according to um, one story. Um, he kills off his old enemy, King Minos, Aminos, and he... Um, well, what, what what can we make of these these sorts of adventures? What do they tell us well, about the, cra- the, the view you, of the craftsman and the view of the engineer, as it were? I think you um, you you uh, already remark on this that everybody wanted to have Daedalus as as their hometown engineer, as their uh, sort of founder of technology uh, and um, marvels in in their own society. So Sicily wanted to claim him, um, and then. After that, uh, Athens claims him, and Athens uh, even, you know, makes up lots of they 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 craft their own myths about Daedalus and make him a um, uh, their own uh, techno wizard, Uh, and then they say that he they say that he was in Athens before he went to Crete. Hmm. (laughs) So um, everyone wants to claim Daedalus, as as you say, because Mm -hmm. all these places did have. Inventors and engineers who could build marvels. We know there there were lots of um, uh, engineering um, wonders built in Sicily, um, and they were attributed to Daedalus. Uh, so I think I think everybody wanted a piece of Daedalus. Yeah. What, so in <laughs> a, in Athens, he creates something uh, things which are called living statues or Daedalic statues, and you have a an extended sort of uh, discussion of of, of these. Um, what do you think, um, it's very interesting to read the sort of criticism of later authors saying, well, these, these couldn't actually have moved. Um, but the story is that they did. So what are, what are people getting at when they're describing, um, Daedalus as having created animated statues? Are, are we talking about, is this some sort of memory of the very creation of representat representational art? I think that, uh, it's probably overdetermined. I think there are probably many ways to interpret the idea that Daedalus made statues that could um, actually move. Uh, we know that in antiquity we do, we do have a lot of descriptions of of statues in temples and shrines that could actually move. They could move their arms, turn their heads, uh, blink their eyes, um, open their mouths, and maybe even make sounds of some sort. Um, so we know that those kind of statues existed, but I also think the artistic uh, um, advances and technologies that were um, beginning in about the 5th century B.C., when artists were able to make hyper-realistic statues, even using plaster and wax casts of real humans, um, so that these statues would fool people into thinking that they were living and about to move or maybe even had moved. You have to think about how these statues were viewed. They're, they're life-size, 
They're very realistic, and they're painted realistically, too. Not just the marble statues, but the bronze statues were painted realistically, not with the garish colors that you see of the reconstructions of paintings now. They mixed wax with the pigments so that they had that soft sort of um, flesh-like um, uh, effect so that uh, they look hyper-realistic. The, the bronze statues had inlaid eyelashes and fingernails and eyeballs. Um, and you think about when you would see these. You'd go to the temple at night. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's no electric light. What you see them, uh, you see them in just by moonlight or starlight or Torchlight. maybe oil, yeah, fl- flickering fire or an oil lamp. So these statues have this sort of they actually have an uncanny valley effect. That's mm-hmm. the eerie feeling that we get today um, when we see hyper-real robots. Um, we like robots until they <laughs> begin to approach human. Yeah. Um, then then uh, that's what the valley refers to. is just a steep decline in our positive feeling, and we are suddenly filled with uh, uh, creepy vibes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that existed in antiquity. I mean, there are descriptions of the uncanny valley effect in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, people have, were filled with fear and awe, um, very mixed feelings about these realistic um, statues. So, um, do you? I, think I mean, that may have to have to do with uh, Daedalus's ability to make animated statues. Is this? I I, I was wondering as. It, you, you write about the this Hephaestus, the, the Smith God, the artisan God. Um, yeah. You point out something I hadn't considered that you know he does spend an awful lot of time making instruments of death. Uh, <laughs> yes. And so there's a way in which uh, there's an ambivalence to the creation of. Uh, well, I mean, Daedalus does a lot of weird stuff. I mean, it's not just the it's facilitating bestiality, but coming up with a way of king, killing off King Minos, um, you know, yes. in, in his baths. Um, and Hephaestus, who uh, may or may not be Daedalus, may or may not be the human analog to Hephaestus or a modified uh, version of some of the stories of Hephaestus. But Hephaestus creates Zeus's lightning bolts, but also the he creates a robot eagle um, to uh, attack. Um, yes, almost like a drone yeah. uh, that comes uh, like clockwork every day to torture Prometheus. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, Hephaestus um, created all the weapons and the um, uh, armor for the gods and heroes. Uh, he's the one who created the bronze killer robot, Talos. Mm-hmm. Um, he created a golden hunting dog that uh, never, never lost its prey. He created other um, watchdogs. Uh, described in Homer's Odyssey, um, so he he creates uh, quite a few, um, uh, as you say, sort of machines of malice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he creates a bunch of wonders for the gods up in the heavens that are harmless. They're sort of benign. He creates you know automated bellows for his forge. <laughs> he makes a fleet of uh, 
driverless carts <laughs> that can de- deliver nectar and ambrosia to the gods at their banquets and they return when they're empty. He made automatic gates for Mount Olympus that automatically close <coughs> and open for the for the chariots of the gods and goddesses. And he even made an invention. Uh, he in- even invented um, uh, a covey of, of life-size golden women to serve as his assistants. Um, and these are all benign wonders, uh, automatons and um, animated devices that he makes for the use of the gods, those are harmless. But as you point out, the ones that uh, interact with humans on the human plane, on Earth, then you get a lot of chaos and destruction and Mm -hmm. death and harm. Um, It's almost like the myths are telling us that these things are fine to think about in the abstract sense when they're up in the heavens, but once uh, they're interacting with us as humans, as mortals... um, we a lot of troubles, so lots of qualms and uh, doubts about uh, about that. And, of course, that, that relates to modern fears of do, uh, does technology favor tyranny mm-hmm. or totalitarianism? Um, same do, kind of question. Yeah, and I, does technology ultimately result in malice and, at, at very best, problems for mankind? Um, yeah. We yeah. we don't have time to get into this, but also Hephaestus is the prime. Let's call him the prime contractor, uh, but uh, and the Pandora contract. Um, yes. <laughs> the, Pandora uh, was commissioned by Zeus to punish humans, and she was another entity who who was made, not born, mm-hmm. and she is. Uh, She's kind of a fembot. She's a, a kind, not a killer robot, but she is worse. sent She's to worse. Earth <laughs> you know, with a mission to a mission to um, harm humankind yes. for all eternity. Yeah, she. <laughs> yeah, I mean, death, a killer robot is is is, an, is not as bad as Pandora in many ways. Uh, she, she, she's bringing eternal problems for the human race. That's uh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The um, well, just to wrapping up here. Um, what do these stories about these fantastic um, technologies tell you about the ancient Greeks? And, and these are these stories are coming from the very edge of our recorded history. Um, yet yeah. we find these stories present amongst an oral culture. Um, it doesn't. I should say. I should start out. It doesn't tell us that you know they predicted quote unquote the robot. Um, no. It, there's no straight line to be drawn between them and us in this regard. Um, but but someone might ask, well, why not? Why, why isn't there? Well, I try not to use the word uh, um, anticipates. I, I usually use uh, foreshadow or mm-hmm. something like that or uh, kind of parallel our own um, advances and our own qualms about it. I think, I think these myths uh, invited people in antiquity to sort of let their imaginations or um, describing the wonders and marvels that the god of invention, Hephaestus is the god of innovation, invention, technology, um, or uh, Daedalus, the brilliant craftsman. Uh, these stories let us think about what they could make using the same familiar materials, tools, and implements that ordinary uh, people used on Earth, but with astounding results. So these are kind of science fictions. They allow people to to think about how one might be able to fabricate uh, self-moving devices, androids, automated machines, if only one possessed divine powers and ingenuity. Um, and I think uh, 
that's that's what reverberates with us today. Mm. Is that, what does that tell us about ourselves then? Well, I think it does say something about human nature. Um, and also, I think it shows that uh, that there's a, just a timeless link between imagination and science, uh, even going back to in- antiquity. Hmm. And we're always uh, we're always tempted to reach beyond what is human. We're we're ingenious. We're curious. We're bold. We're audacious, uh, and we just continue to test the boundaries, as they did in those Greek myths. Um, so we'll have the same. Uh, we have that same quality of curiosity and knowledge seeking, pushing the frontiers. Um, and the, as Sophocles says, uh, our ingenuity will either have positive or negative results. <laughs> <laughs> My guest today has been Adrian Mayer. She is the author of Gods and Robots: Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology. Adrian, thank you so much for being a guest on Historically Thinking. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 